You're going to love this. Just love it. Finally. Finally. Stuck in the Middle with You from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in L.A. 91.7 FM KYAQ on beautiful Oregon Central Coast. And coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. On the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the iTunes on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and other fine affiliates nationwide and worldwide, including Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. If not you, I don't know. Do you? You have an opportunity to tell me, by the way, how swell I am or amant. My uh, email address is bradcast at bradblog.com. Yes, we read them all. And yes, we may be uh, responding to uh, to one of those emails a little bit later. Once again, it has to do with the Green News Report. Uh-oh. So that's right. You better say, uh-oh, Desi Doyen. That is, of course, is Desi Doyen, our producer, my co-host on the Green News Report. You... We'll be joining us uh, a little bit later for the latest Green News Report with yes. some unexpectedly good news. I know. Today. Crazy, U- ain't it? Usually, when everyone hears, uh-oh, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report's coming, it's uh, it's nothing but trouble. They, they, they just, uh, <laughs> it, it, but, you know, get ready to be sad. But not today, actually. Some uh, some good news. Lindsey Gra- Senator Lindsey Graham uh, who who never does anything that is not stupid, <laughs> does something that is not stupid. Go figure. Yeah, so that's good. Uh, and you'll have uh, more on the uh, the death, the continuing death, the long and painful death of Big Cole. Yep, bad but, news for Big Cole. Bad news for Big Cole. Good news for Big Breathers. Yes. Uh, also, um, uh, I I reveal how desperately old I am. I think. In <laughs> I know this is fun one in today's one. Yes. Stay tuned. But you know, it's it's my birthday this weekend, so I might as well uh, just uh, come out with how old I am anyway, because I'm uh, I ain't getting any older. But as you like to say, whenever a birthday comes up, what do you say? It beats the alternative. Oh, that That's one, what yes. You, yeah. I was thinking of some other things I said, oh, well, but not that one. Those That's things. right. All right. <laughs> uh, so uh, all of that, and uh, we will be joined by Ari Berman of The Nation, author who has a uh, brand new book coming out in just weeks. Uh, but he has been out in North Carolina where we've got this uh, this trial over the mother of all voter suppression laws. The worst voter suppression law in the nation since the Jim Crow era is now on trial in North Carolina. We'll be talking with um, 
with Ari Berman about that. He's been uh, he's been at the trial this week, and uh, and he's a, a fantastic reporter on that. Fantastic reporter, uh, and and his book on this, uh, which is on voting rights, "Give Us the Ballot: The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America," is a uh, frankly is a must read. I got an advance uh, an advance look at it, and for anyone who gives a damn about democracy in America. Uh, and where it has gone off the rails and where uh, so many in this nation have fought to get it back on the rails. Uh, this book is for you. Also, you know, I mean, speaking of democracy off the rails, this conversation we had yesterday, if you didn't hear it, um, concerning what went on up in Wisconsin with the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which must be, I don't know, but it seems to me it must be the most corrupt court in the nation at this point. Maybe there's other ones I don't know about who are worse, but I don't know. I don't know. I can't think of any other courts who have, you know, are elected, elected justices who received literally millions and millions of dollars from corporations, corporate interests, who then turn around and decide cases being brought by those very same corporate interests, and what do you know? Decide in their favor. Imagine that. Um, we talked about it yesterday, and it concerns Scott Walker in, in Wisconsin, and um, but above and beyond Scott Walker in Wisconsin. That case is going to affect every state in the union. Mark my words. That's what you're going to be hearing about today. You talk about Citizens United. Soon you will be talking about what happened in uh, in Wisconsin in that case, because that is the roadmap for this nation, for Republicans and elections in this nation. And right now, there's really nothing to stop them. They got the decision they needed at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Scott Walker is off the hook for what would have been criminal violations of law and now the people who put together that roadmap, the right-wingers who put together that roadmap in Wisconsin, those were national. Those weren't Wisconsin people. Those were national Republicans. They will be putting that uh, roadmap to use in the very near future in every state in the country. And it's going to go straight to the Supreme Court where, what do you know, they've got a friendly Supreme Court who very well uh, may be inclined to agree with what happened. If you missed any portion or if you didn't catch that interview that uh, I did yesterday with Brendan Fisher of Wisconsin's Center for Media and Democracy, I would suggest you check it out. Go to bradblog.com. You can download the whole thing. It's free. Go to iTunes and download it there if you like. Just go to iTunes and search for Brad Friedman because if you search for Bradcast over there, iTunes does you the favor of thinking you made a typo and they thought you meant broadcast and they show you everything that has the word broadcast in it. So go go to iTunes, search for Brad Friedman. You will find yesterday's episode. And while you're there, feel free to give us a good uh, a good review on iTunes because it makes it easier for the rest of the world to find our uh, to find our programs over there. Yes, Desi Doyne. Well, I was just uh, going to say that that the thing about this particular interview that you had with Brendan Fisher about this Wisconsin campaign finance reform ruling, I mean, not reform, but this ruling about campaign finance reform, this is an early warning system. 
The broadcast is your early warning system that yeah. this is what is happening and is going to happen in every state as they systematically try to dismantle everything that keeps money from absolutely corrupting politics further than it already has. And if you don't believe, Desi, that it is your that we are your early warning system, uh, we interviewed Brendan about this very case, Brendan Fisher, about this very case in June of last year on this show, on June of 2014. And I told everyone, pay attention. I mean, I don't know if I could have, uh, you know, rang bells or set off sirens or something to get people to pay attention uh, to what what this case, what what the trajectory of this case was. It came out so far exactly as we uh, predicted it would a year ago, over a year ago, when I said this will affect every election in the nation. Pay attention, people. So, uh, yes, we are your early warning system. Uh, listen and or ignore us at your peril. Um <laughs> All right, a, a couple of things before we get to uh, well, before we get to to Ari Berman and the case in North Carolina, which again uh, is not about North Carolina, it is about every state in the union because they are challenging uh, the, the the good guys in this case, the NAACP, the ACLU, the Department of Justice, are challenging this terrible law, which is meant to do nothing but keep certain people from being able to cast their vote. And um, the pushback against it by the Department of Justice is to say, hey, yes, the Supreme Court may have de- destroyed the the central provision of the Voting Rights Act, the provision that made it so brilliant in the first place, the provision that required jurisdictions like North Carolina with a history of racial discrimination at the polling place, that if they wanted to change their election laws, they had to get federal approval first and they had to show that these laws would not be discriminatory against uh, certain groups of voters that were protected, that are protected by the Constitution. And that's what the Supreme Court did away with. And now, not only is this law that was passed in North Carolina uh, clearly in violation of that idea and that ideal, but the Department of Justice is saying, uh, you got to strike down this law, federal courts in North Carolina, you got to strike down this law and... You've got to uh, restore the provision that the Supreme Court took away. You've got to put you've got to bail in, as they say, North Carolina back under the pre-clearance regime so that they can't do this in the future. And they would be the first state, the first jurisdiction in the country to be bailed back in to the Voting Rights Act. And that, well, unless Texas is bailed in first because there's a federal law going on, a federal trial commencing in well the trial's over actually and the trial found that texas's law was uh, was in violation of the constitution and the voting rights act and there too the call is to bail in texas so they can't change the voting rights uh the, the election laws in that state with their history of racial discrimination without getting approval from the government first and there's a reason why they have to get pre-clearance and why it is so important to voters the average everyday voter that these states and these jurisdictions get pre-clearance because if they go ahead and change the laws mm-hmm. then the voters are stuck yeah. until the uh, lawsuit until is brought until after the election yeah. is over because the Supreme Court has ruled you can't make all these big changes we can't make all these big rulings in the in the days and weeks before an election when it would make a difference to the voters who are being disenfranchised that's why it's got to be important for them to have pre-clearance before they launch these voter suppression tactics 
Well spoke. Thank you. More on that in a moment because we got some more voting news also before we get to uh, to uh, North Carolina and Ari Berman. But I've got well, just a couple of items I, I want to uh, hit very quickly um, because uh, they involve uh, really stupid people, and you know how much I enjoy picking on stupid people. So uh, this very quickly uh, in Oklahoma. Barack Obama was speaking at a, uh, a federal prison, or at least visiting a federal penitentiary. First president, first U.S. president to do so in his uh, in his new push for criminal justice reform. But outside the prison in Oklahoma, and uh, this is just, I, this is something that just caught my eye, and I, I just have to point it out because we may see more of this. I don't know. There have been these small protests. Uh, with the Confederate flag. And there was about, I don't know, a dozen people or so protesting, waving their Confederate flag uh, near this near this prison, meant to be a, you know, a protest of Barack Obama. African-American Barack Obama, let's wave the rebel flag in his face. Uh, whatever. I don't even know what their, their point is. <clears throat> I guess their nooses weren't available to wave. But in any event... Um, so they're they're waving these Confederate flags, and I saw some uh, a shot of this on the news, Desi. I don't know if you saw this. There was a guy wearing a, a baseball hat, wa- waving his Confederate flag with great big letters on the baseball hat, USA. This guy is a tremendous patriot. Not he, clear on the concept. He loves the USA so much. He believes. He's a patriot. He has been conned by, you know, the 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 long running Fox News con that uh, you're a great patriot if you uh, wear a flag pin or a USA hat. And then he's waving the Confederate battle flag, the flag of the states that broke off from the USA. The flag of the states that attacked the USA. That were in a war with the USA that committed treason against the USA, that rebelled against the USA, that wanted to leave the USA. This jackass is waving a Confederate flag while wearing his USA hat. How stupid are these people? Well. Speaking of stupid, this guy, uh, well, he should. I'm, I'm just shocked that this guy down in Oklahoma hasn't run for governor uh, uh, in, uh, in Maine yet. Or at least Oklahoma. He should run in Oklahoma. Meanwhile, in Maine, we spent some time last week pointing out to you, identifying uh, the man who I described as the dumbest governor in America, possibly the dumbest governor in all of U.S. history. That's Maine's Republican Governor Paul LePage. And I just got a quick update in his uh, <laughs> in his dumbness. Updates in dumbness is what this is. Apparently. Dumbitude? Yes. Um, so Paul LePage, and, and I spent, I think it was a good half hour last week going through just a few of Paul LePage's uh, dumbitude. Talking about how, you know, he, he honestly really believes that there is uh, a little motor inside of of wind turbines, wind turbines, turbines or turbines? Dad? I say turbines because if you a, say turbine, people think you're people talking think, about uh, something like a, in their on head, your head. So, yeah. yeah, but it actually is a wind turbine. So he believes there's a little motor in there meant to make the blades go around to make people believe that it is uh, generating energy. energy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's how dumb this guy is, and that's just one of many. So, uh, but the dumbest thing he's ever done yet 
is uh, he's been he's been vetoing everything that the uh, that the legislature has been throwing at him, that the Democratic majority legislature has been passing. He's just been vetoing it willy nilly because he's in such a fight with the legislature with that may be investigating him for impeachment for something that he did. I'm not going to go into the details now because we don't have time. But he's, so he's been vetoing everything, and the legislature has been overriding his his ridiculous vetoes. But now he came up with another idea. The uh, They sent him a bunch of bills. The legislature sent uh, Paul LePage a bunch of bills, and then they uh, took a recess for the July 4th holiday, and he came up with the great idea that instead of vetoing, uh, vetoing these bills outright, especially one of them, which would give money, to undocumented immigrants claiming asylum, something that he claimed to be against, something that he ran on uh, in 2014, his reelection. He was against this, said he would veto this, this uh, horrible bill, this horrible idea of of giving immigrants here uh, who are uh, claiming asylum, uh, giving them any kind of help, food, you know, food stamps, welfare, that sort of thing. So this was one of the bills that were re- that were recently sent to Paul LePage. And instead of vetoing them and seeing that veto get uh, overridden, he decided to use a constitutional provision that allows him that if he does not sign the bill, it becomes vetoed without his signature, but only if the legislature had adjourned. Well, they hadn't adjourned. They were on a short recess. And if they're not adjourned and he doesn't sign the bill... The bill becomes law in 10 days if it doesn't get his signature. And sure enough, 19 bills all at once, including this bill for the immigrant uh, welfare thing, became law without his signature. And he said and and he said, well, no, they were uh, they were adjourned. They said, no, we weren't adjourned. We were on recess. And these uh, all these 19 uh, bills became law. And then to show that he really, really meant it, that it was really on purpose, he used the Pee Wee Herman defense. I meant to do that. Yes, I meant to do that. Uh, He said, no, no, I know what the Constitution is. Believe me, I know. And I'm right about this. And not only, I'm so right that I'm going to hang on to another 51 bills that were set to become, that did become law. After he failed to either sign them or veto them, they became law. So we now got 51 plus 19. That's what, like 70 laws that he would have rejected, uh, but he lost his chance to reject them. Now, he's going to challenge it. He's going to go to court. But uh, the legislature asked for a judgment from the attorney general, from the state attorney general on this. And the state attorney general said, uh, yeah, he blew it. These are law. These have become law. And then the legislature came back into office, uh, you know, came back off of their recess. And they took a vote on this and they said, yeah, these are law. This is the law. He blew it. And I guess they got 65 pieces of legislation that he attempted to return. So he sent them back. He sent back 65 of these with vetoes on it. And they said, uh, who are you, Governor? We, these have already passed. You already allowed these to become laws. We're not going to take these bills. That's right. It was the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the clerk of the legislature, I guess. So we've communicated. We've told that to the governor. We, we don't want these bills. You don't send them back. They're done. It's over. So now Paul Page is going to go to court. He's going to spend uh, people's taxpayers' money because, you know, he's a conservative. 
<laughs> so he's going to spend taxpayer money to fight this, and we'll see if he wins. I don't think he will. I think Paul LePage is the dumbest governor in America. And maybe history. I meant to do that. Okay. Uh, and I've got, well, I'm going to have to hold this for next time. I'll, I'll do one more before we get to our break uh, and uh, Ari Berman, because this sets up what's going on in North Carolina. A Republican member of the North Carolina State Board of Elections worked closely with local officials in an effort to eliminate a heavily Democratic voting site in 2014. A plan that a judge ruled was intended to suppress voter turnout. This is according to hundreds of emails that were reviewed by the Associated Press this week. The State Board of Elections is supposed to act as a neutral arbiter, uh, according to AP, when policy disputes arise involving county elections boards. The emails show that one member of the board, Paul J. Foley, worked closely behind the scenes with Republican officials in Watauga County, North Carolina, as they crafted a plan to eliminate an early voting site entirely at the Appalachian State University that was used by a lot of students, thousands of students. And they just, for no good reason, they said, hey, you know what, let's get rid of this voting site. Make it harder for students to vote there. Now, this guy, Foley, uh, who, who colluded with the Republicans to shut down this voting site, uh, he's already under scrutiny, according to AP, for failing to recuse himself for 17 months from the state election board's investigation into political donations from an Oklahoma sweepstakes mogul that was represented by his law firm. So he recused himself finally after 17 months, only after staff learned that this mogul had paid nearly $1.3 million to this guy's firm. And he was in there doing uh, work, working on an investigation uh, without revealing that he had this uh, these close ties to this firm. One point three million dollars worth. Anyway, Foley, this guy and Republican officials in uh, Watauga County were uh, discussing the removal of this Appalachian State voting site, according to these emails that were provided to the AP by a, a Democrat who was one of those who had successfully sued to keep the location open. In 2014, they got it back open, but not, you know, before uh, these Republicans tried to shut it down. So Foley was right in the middle of this. He was advising the Republicans in Watauga how to move forward and saying, ah, you know, it's all right. Don't worry. When there's a challenge, when this is brought to the state uh, state election board, I'm on it. I'll make sure that everything works out just fine and that they get to keep it open. And which is what happened. They had to go to a court of law to get it uh, shut. Well, to shut down this plan to get this voting site back open that was used by so many students. So um, it, it, the judge found that uh, shutting down this location would, quote, discourage student voting. And the emails show a continual collaboration between Foley and uh, this guy, Stacy Eggers, uh, on the Watauga County government attorney. Uh, and he's also a member of the Watauga County uh, GOP. Uh, in early August of 2013, as a new county board with a Republican majority was about to be sworn in, apparently Stacy Eggers asked Foley to look at this proposal to make sure it would pass. And that is exactly what happened. This county 
this actually this voting site that they were trying to shut down was the only early voting site to vote Democratic in the 2008 and 2012 presidential elections and in the 2012 governor's race as well. So they wanted to shut it down and they colluded to shut it down. And in fact, they would have gotten it shut down had it not been for the courts and a lawsuit that said, no, you got to reopen it. There's no good reason to shut this down other than to keep students from being able to cast their vote. And that is, in fact, what the court decided. Now, I bring this up because this news came out this week, and it is not currently a part of the trial that is going on in North Carolina, but it underscores exactly what Republicans are trying to do with these insidious laws. These aren't about protecting against voter fraud or any other kind of fraud. This is about keeping certain voters from casting their legal vote. African-American voters, student voters, God forbid, Democratic voters get to vote in an election. That's what this trial is about. And we will be talking about this trial in a moment with Ari Berman of The Nation right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. What is Evidence is clear. I'm not alone. There are thousands of us here. This is my democracy. You won't go telling me my vote don't matter anymore. No, you won't. And it's not worth fighting for. Oh, it is. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com fighting for your democracy, what's left of it. And that's what they're doing down there in North Carolina as well this week and for the next several weeks. Uh, We have been talking, well, we've been talking over the past week since this trial started, but we've been talking for the last several years at this point about uh, about the North Carolina, what I call voter suppression law, what I called on the day that it was... uh, passed, uh, frankly, uh, in North Carolina, the worst voter suppression law since the Jim Crow era. That was my take on it originally. It was passed just uh, days after the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act back in the summer of 2013. This law passed by Republicans in North Carolina does everything that all of the other voter suppression laws you may have heard about around the country It sort of does all of those things, wraps them up into a single bill. Uh, Photo ID restrictions at the polling place, reducing uh, the early voting period, uh, doing away with same-day registration, eliminating pre-registration for those aged uh, 16 and 17, which was one of many very, 
progressive uh, you know, election reforms that came to North Carolina over the last decade or so that were completely unwound by this uh, enormous bill uh, passed by Republicans just after the Voting Rights Act was uh, the central provision of the Voting Rights Act was was gutted by the Supreme Court. Well, there have been challenges against that law and against pretty much every provision in it by the NAACP, the ACLU, the Department of Justice, all of whom are essentially arguing that not only are these uh, provisions meant to restrict voting by, uh, by minorities uh, and Democrats in the state of North Carolina, but that none of these restrictions would have been allowed had the Voting Rights Act Section 5 still been in place, that section required uh, uh, states like North Carolina to get pre-approval from the federal government before they could implement such laws like this. The, the states had to show that th- these would not be discriminatory laws uh, and disenfranchise voters on the basis of, uh, of race. Well, when the Supreme Court did away with that, it allowed states like North Carolina, like Texas and others to implement these laws that probably would have been stopped before. So now we're back in court and we're back in court in North Carolina um, over this particular law. And the Department of Justice is saying, uh, hey, not only should these laws be thrown out, but in the future, North Carolina should have to get preclearance again for their laws the way they used to have to get under the uh, under the Voting Rights Act. So we've been talking about this for a while. Uh, and a man who has been in the courtroom this week in North Carolina following the proceedings uh, joins us next. Ari Berman is a contributing writer for The Nation magazine and an investigative journalism fellow at The Nation Institute. His new book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America will be published in just days at the beginning of August. I've gotten an early look at it, uh, and frankly, it's an exhaustively researched and uh, also heart-wrenching documentation of the uniquely American and harrowing tale of the fight to vote in this country and the outrageously long and continuing effort to block it. Ari is uh, is the go-to guy, in my opinion, on issues of voting rights and more. His stories have appeared in The New York Times, Rolling Stone, and The Guardian. He's a frequent guest on MSNBC and, and NPR. And his book will be coming out, uh, as I say, in August, timed to the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. Ari Berman, sir, welcome back to the broadcast. Hey, Brad, thanks for having me, and thank you for the very kind words. Uh, Thank you for the very important book, uh, because there is so much, and I haven't gotten, I admit I haven't gotten to go through all of it, but I've gone through, uh, I mean, we're hundreds of pages of documentation going back, uh, you know, to the fight for voting rights in this country. I mean, it's just, and bringing us up to date where we are as this fight sadly continues. Uh, So it's just a really important uh, historic document uh, that uh, I, I hope it's a must-read in every civics class uh, in the country. Frankly, so thank you. Thank and congr- you. Thank you so much. And I don't want people to think it's so long that they that they can't read it. I mean, it was obviously exhaustively researched, but it is only you know 300 pages, so you could read it in a few days well, if you wanted to. And with all of your reporting, uh, you put so much uh, you know personal detail, you know stories, personal stories about uh, people. And, you know, you, you, you take these vast, these great big ideas and make them personal. And that's the way you also cover 
you know, the, like the trial going on in North Carolina, how this yeah. affects individuals. And I, I think it really mm-hmm. puts a personal touch on it that makes the, the book eminently readable. So don't get me wrong. Uh, it's not a textbook, but it is an important record and uh, one that's easy to read. Um, so let's get into uh, what's going on in North Carolina, and then we can tie it back. Well, actually, we'll, we'll tie it back immediately, because I think it is uh, inextricable with the uh, long fight for voting rights. When this trial began uh, down in North Carolina, Dr., uh, uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber, the uh, president of the NAA, North Carolina NAACP, who has been fighting this law from day one and marshalling the troops down there with protests uh, each and every week, really, uh, since this bill was passed. He said at the start of this trial that this is our Selma, referring, of course, to the bloody fight for voting rights in Selma, Alabama, that ultimately led to the both the Civil Rights Act in 1964, the Voting Rights Act in '65. He said the people of North Carolina are standing up in the courts and the streets because we refuse to accept the revival of Jim Crow tactics used to block access to the ballot for African-American and Latino voters. Other people have said the same. Mark Carlin wrote at Truthout that this kind of voter restriction laws, uh, these kind of voter restriction laws that are being challenged in North Carolina can be traced straight back to the South's post-Reconstruction efforts to keep black people from voting whether by acts of terror and brutality or by legislation. So is is the comparison here to the civil rights movement of the 60s appropriate, Ari Berman? And if so, why? I think it is appropriate, and I, and I wrote about this uh, in my dispatch from the trial called, interestingly enough, Why North Carolina is the New Selma. And I, I think it, it, at first glance the comparison seems ridiculous because uh, – in Selma of the 1960s, only 2% of African Americans were registered to vote. It was the most segregated city in the South. The North Carolina of today is nothing like that. Uh, the North Carolina of today, you have African Americans represented at every level of government. You have the fact that black turnout exceeded white turnout in the past two elections. So the, the situations are a lot different. But here's the similarity. In Selma, people had nothing and were fighting for something. In North Carolina, they had seemingly everything, right? They had all these voting reforms that you mentioned, early voting, same-day registration, pre-registration for 16- and 17-year-olds, and it was all taken away. It was all taken away or it was reduced. Cut early voting, eliminate same-day registration, eliminate pre-registration, add voter ID. And what Selma in the 1960s and what North Carolina in the 2013-2015 era shows is it shows how far these conservative white Southerners will go to maintain their political power. In Selma, they enforced segregation through brute force and also through things like literacy tests and poll taxes. In North Carolina, it's more subtle, okay? There aren't Billy clubs, there aren't literacy tests, but they're saying this is how black turnout increased. North Carolina went from 48th in voter turnout in the late 80s to 11th in voter turnout in 2018. So there's a huge jump in voter turnout after these voting reforms were passed. And the Republicans there basically said, we're going to tamp this turnout down. So it's like Selma, not in so much as the restrictions themselves, but in the motivation behind the spirit, behind the restrictions, to try to make it harder for people to vote so that you can have uh, conservative white Southerners maintain their political power. So really the same thing. You were seeing uh, in the 60s, uh, in in the 50s and 60s with the Jim Crow law, a concern 
about uh, black turnout in elections and uh, a concern about what we what we ultimately have at this point, which is, you know, as you mentioned, African-American officials and so forth. And so they in, they, they they ratcheted up the, uh, the the laws to make it harder and harder to vote, leading to something like Selma. And you're saying the same you're you seem to be suggesting the same thing here that. With the progressive move, and it really was, it's more progressive. The laws as they were before they were rolled back in 2013 in North Carolina were more progressive. Uh, the election laws were more progressive, I would argue, in North Carolina than they are out here in liberal, lefty, hippy-dippy California. Yeah, I think people don't realize that because North Carolina is in the South, that it did have the most progressive election laws in the country. And that's why voter turnout increased so much. You had a situation where in 1965, when the Voting Rights Act was passed, about half of black North Carolinians were registered to vote compared to almost all of white North Carolinians. That gap began to narrow after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, but black turnout was still quite low uh, in the 80s and early 90s. And so uh, between 2000 and 2012, there was a big effort to increase turnout for all voters, in particular African-American voters, by doing things like adopting early voting, same-day registration during early voting, out-of-precinct voting, to try to make it more convenient uh, to vote. And what we've seen is that it worked, that North Carolina, as I mentioned, moved from 48th to 11th in voter turnout, and black turnout in particular increased by 65% from 2000 to 2012. And because of that, you had the election of Barack Obama in 2008, who very surprisingly mm-hmm. carried North Carolina in, in 08, and you had the president running very strong in 2012, and North Carolina became a swing state again. And Republicans looked at those numbers, and they said, what can we do to tamp that turnout down? They can't just pass a law that says black people can't vote. That's why we have a Voting Rights Act. Um, so they looked at the methods by which uh, African Americans and other minorities voted, and they said, these are the methods we're going to target. And it's absolutely true that they put everything they could in the bill once the Voting Rights Act was gutted. And and that's the argument, obviously, that the uh, that the plaintiffs are making in this case, that, you know, they, they, they were this was done purposely to keep African Americans from being able to vote. But uh, yeah. the state is saying, no, no, this is these are simply common sense measures uh, to keep fraud from happening at the polling place. First off, uh, what evidence is there of fraud that is being presented? You were at the trial. Uh, that What evidence is the state putting forward to to support their argument that these laws are needed to block fraud at the polls? Uh, and, and what evidence uh, uh, do the plaintiffs have that, that you make, Ari Berman, that these uh, laws, that these laws were being passed specifically to keep African-Americans from being able to vote in North Carolina? Sure. Well, the state is making two arguments. The first argument that you meant is a, is about fraud, and it's more of a hypothetical argument, because uh, if you look at voter impersonation in North Carolina, which is the most widely cited example of fraud, there are only two cases from 2000 to 2012. So when 21 million votes are cast, and that's point oh 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 nine five percent of total votes. So they're let, not let, really let me, saying that... Let me underscore that. You said there are two cases of voter fraud... Uh, that have been found in voter impersonation, voter impersonation, the type of uh, fraud, the type of voter fraud that yeah. would would could potentially be stopped by, uh, for example, photo ID restrictions at the polling. Two yeah. cases out of 21 yeah. million votes cast. Yeah. So what the state is arguing is more of an abstraction, which is they're saying that if someone showed up at the wrong precinct, for example, mm-hmm. or if they cast a ballot during same day registration, there, there wasn't time for the state to verify it 
then there would be a potential for fraud. Now, there's no actual evidence that things like same-day registration or out-of-precinct voting lead to more fraud in North Carolina or anywhere else, but the state is making that argument nonetheless, that it's possible, and that their, their restrictions are thus a common-sense uh, effort to, to look at something that is possibly occurring. So they're, the not putting, they're, not, that, they're not putting actual evidence of this case, this case of fraud, that case of fraud. They're saying it's possible it could occur. Yeah, I didn't see any actual numbers or evidence or okay. cases. Okay. This was all theoretical questioning that right. it could occur. The second argument they're making, and, and I think they might have more traction on this argument, but this is why I think it's wrong. They're basically saying that even though North Carolina cut early voting, they still have early voting compared to states like New York that don't have early voting. Mm -hmm. Even though North Carolina eliminated same-day registration, most states don't have same-day registration. So what's the big deal? Uh, even though North Carolina doesn't have out-of-precinct voting anymore, neither does New York. So what's the big deal? Basically saying that North Carolina still has better election laws than a bunch of states in the country that are supposedly progressive. So what's the big deal? Now, I think on the face of it, that argument has some traction. Yeah. Here's the problem with it. The problem is that you can't compare North Carolina to other states. You have to compare North Carolina to North Carolina, because voters are there are used to voting in that state. And what we're seeing, and, and there, there are stories of this at the trial, is that people are showing up during the early voting period thinking they can update their voter registration if they've moved between counties, for example, and they can't anymore. So they're not able to vote. Or people are showing up at the polling precinct that's closest to their work. Because, for example, like one voter testified, they work a 72-hour shift mm -hmm. every week, and they don't have time to go to their own, another precinct. They have to go to their precinct that's right by where they work, or else they're not going to be able to vote. That they're not able to vote anymore. So it's people in North Carolina, they don't care what the election laws are like in New York or California or Vermont. They're only used to what the laws are like there. Mm -hmm. And if you take something away from voters, you disrupt the process. And so this is going to be a crucial distinction the judge is going to have to make. Is the judge going to basically say that uh, I'm, I'm satisfied with North Carolina's laws vis-a-vis -vis New York or California? Or is the judge going to say that, no, it's not fair to take away voting reforms that you had. Under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which has been struck down, as you mentioned, or, or rendered inoperative by mm -hmm. the Supreme Court, North Carolina would have to prove that their own voting changes didn't leave African Americans worse off. So the comparison wouldn't be between New York and North Carolina. The comparison would be between North Carolina and North Carolina. And, and, that, and they would certainly lose that case. But that's not the standard anymore, so it's a tougher case to make. Well, and, and, and that's a case that sort of came up in the, uh, in the fight for marriage equality out here in California, that once a right has been granted, now we're into a different territory when, because now we're talking about abridging it, pulling it back. And the, the, the 15th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which the Voting Rights Act was meant to enforce, uh, you know, says that the, the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged. And I guess the argument yeah. can be made that they had these certain rights in North Carolina and now they're being denied or abridged. Uh, our, and one good example, uh, you write about um, Dale Hicks, the 39-year-old former sergeant in the Marine Corps, uh, who, who was under the impression, as I understand it, that he would have been able to vote under the old, under the previous law before it was changed. Can you, uh, do you have that story at your fingertips to tell what happened? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so I mean, this is a common story that we heard in the, during the 2014 election, was that uh, Dale Hicks was, as you mentioned, a sergeant in the Marine. He, mo he moved from where he was stationed uh, to Raleigh, 
And uh, by virtue of moving, he had to update his voter registration. So what he did is, during the early voting period, he went to the polling place and, and asked if he could update his registration, because that's how it had been mm-hmm. when North Carolina had same-day registration. Um, but instead, he was told that, no, he couldn't update his registration anymore, because same-day registration had passed, uh, and that he couldn't vote, had it been eliminated, and he couldn't vote because the registration deadline had passed. Because uh, the registration deadline in North Carolina ends 25 days before the election, so here's an example of yes, if if Dale Hicks lived in New York, mm-hmm. he wouldn't have been able to do this because early voting and same-day registration don't exist in New York. But in North Carolina, he was used to the process, and he didn't know the process had changed, and he couldn't vote. And what we saw is that uh, there were 2,300 examples of this in the 2014 general election of voters who showed up thought they would be able to vote and weren't able to vote because the rules changed. That's a, a very high number of disenfranchised voters. And you just can't dismiss the fact that, you know, we have 2,300 documented cases of people who weren't able to vote in the last election because of these laws, and the likely estimates of people who are prevented from participating is much, much higher. 11,000 people uh, who registered in North Carolina less than 25 days before Election Day in 2014 were unable to vote when they could have under the previous rules. Uh, Ari Berman, in the minute or two we have left here, um, you, you were in the courtroom. What is, uh, what, what's the sense that you get uh, from in the courtroom and outside the courtroom? Are the, uh, are the plaintiffs here optimistic about this case? Is there uh, concern? What, what was the sense that you took away from what was going on on the ground in, in North Carolina? Well, I think there's concern in the sense that this is a conservative judge appointed by George W. Bush who already denied a preliminary injunction that would have blocked this law in the first place. So this judge has a record here, and so people are concerned that he, he's already weighed in, in some context, in favor of this, this law. But the, the, the second thing that gives them some hope is that the Fourth Circuit overruled this judge and said that they couldn't, North Carolina couldn't, uh, and same-day registration and out-of-precinct voting. That decision was stayed by the Supreme Court, uh, but basically, or, or I should say it was overturned by the Supreme Court. Uh, but basically, this, this judge is now looking over his shoulder mm-hmm. and realizing that the appeals court has already overruled him once, and maybe he needs to be a little bit more careful uh, and weigh all of the evidence uh, more carefully. So he seemed like he was, uh, you know, doing a very uh, careful job of reviewing the evidence. But, I mean, this, this is a conservative judiciary, and it's a conservative judici- judiciary all the way up the line. And it's not and a... Judici- it's, it's a judiciary that's hostile to the Voting Rights Act at the Supreme Court level. And so I think for all that reason, uh, this is something that would have been a slam-dunk case for the Justice Department if Section 5 had not been gutted. But, but now I think it's a tough case for them to win. Uh, and it, I think we're looking at approximately a three-week bench trial. No jury. It's just the judge there, right, in the courtroom? Yeah. I mean, so the judge is going to review the evidence. He, he said he had 11,000 pages during the preliminary injunction hearing, and he probably has, you know, up, I, I would imagine almost 10 times that <laughs> now because it's a full trial. Yeah. And so th- I think, that, you know, the judge is going to take a while, uh, and then the appeals court's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this could take a, a long time um, to resolve, and there's going to be quite a bit of uncertainty in North Carolina about the election laws uh, for a long time. Hopefully this will be decided well in advance of 2016, but you just see how hard it is now 
uh, without Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act to try to strike down these kind of laws. Yeah, it really does underscore just the fact that this case is is in court and uh, may not be determined in time for 2016. we got a similar case going on in Texas uh, and elsewhere working its way through the courts. I think that alone underscores that the U.S. Supreme Court had it wrong when they said, uh, we don't need preclearance anymore for these laws. Uh, uh, Section 2 protects uh, voting laws in all states, so we don't have to you know, uh, just target certain uh, jurisdictions that had a history of, uh, uh, of racial uh, voting laws, restrict, racially restrictive voting laws. I think this alone underscores how they were wrong, but this is what yeah. we got now, and uh, I, I guess uh, we're going to have to see how this goes in the weeks ahead. I think the Texas case may even come in sooner than this one, but it's all going back to the Supreme Court. It, it, that's what it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, the Texas case should be decided sooner because it's already been mm-hmm. before the Court of Appeals. The expectation is that if the Court of Appeals uh, upholds the lower court decision striking down the, the voter ID law as a poll tax, that this is getting appealed immediately to the Supreme Court. So the Texas case could be before the Supreme Court in 2016. I think the North Carolina case is going to take longer. It's worth mentioning that this law, number one, it never would have taken this shape. All these voting restrictions never would have been put in if North Carolina knew that it needed federal approval for the law. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. So the law would have never been the law. The second thing is the law never would have been approved um, because it clearly leaves African-American voters and other minorities worse off. So you have a situation where this law would have immediately been blocked uh, back in 2013 if it even came out of the legislature. Uh, instead, it's 2015. We've been, it's two years later. And we still don't know what's going to happen here. And the law, meanwhile, the provisions of the law are in effect and are already disenfranchising voters. I think that's such a clear case study to me um, that the Supreme Court was wrong when it said that the special protections of the Voting Rights Act weren't needed. Unbelievable uh, and, and troubling and disturbing. It's been that kind of a week between, uh, between what's going on in North Carolina and the decision out of the Wisconsin Supreme Court yesterday. Boy, they really they really got the people coming and going, the people who are simply trying to have, you know, democracy or some version of it. Ari Berman, uh, thank you as always. Check out his article, Why North Carolina is the New Selma, over at The Nation. And be sure to get a copy of his new book coming out uh, in just a week's time or two weeks' time or so, timed to the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. Give us the ballot the modern struggle for voting rights in America. Thank you, Ari, for all you do, and uh, I I suspect we're going to have to talk to you more and more about this uh, North Carolina case and many others in the days ahead. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate it. You bet. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, the unexpectedly good news Green News Report. All of that straight ahead. Stay tuned. Brad Friedman. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Green News Report coming up momentarily, but this from a listener uh, who wrote to bradcast at bradblog.com. Row. Uh, yes. Uh, love your regular reporting of climate news. Thanks. Two suggestions, and I'm going to read one of them because I only have time for one. One, uh, the term climate change is too benign. 
I think everyone should start calling it climate crisis or climate emergency to help people realize this is not a next century problem. Perhaps you can start that movement. Ah, that's a nice idea. Well, actually, I do call it climate crisis from time to time, and I know you do too. Uh, but I, but I think the, uh, just strictly speaking, the scientific phenomenon, I think, is more accurately called climate change because yes. that's what's happening. Yes. The fact that it is a crisis. I'm not sure that's yet scientific. Uh, that's more political, is it not? Uh, that would be more of an advocacy term, right, right, rather than a scientific term, which is what the scientists have been going with, the science term. Then we will be uh, more adversary, advocating from, it, what's the word? Ad, ad, advocating. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to advocate even more than we already do. All right, Desi Doyne, are you ready? Yes. It is our latest Green News report. I know I'm not a scientist, but here's the problem I've got with some people in my party. Senator Lindsey Graham chides his fellow Republican candidates on global warming. Regional cap-and-trade programs bringing in the big bucks. Dirty coal is on the way out in the U.S. Plus... We can be part of something that actually makes a difference to our future. The climate action movement gets a big assist from a big boy band. All of those big boys and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. They're trying to regulate... The amount of mercury emitted by power plants in the U.S. Oh, great. More regulation. What next? How much feces they can put in our food? Big government. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I see you've got a story today about Lindsey Graham, the only one pretty much in the entire panoply of GOP candidates who actually isn't a full-on denier. Are you going to be making fun of him? Um, Actually, no, because I really appreciate the fact that he is not a total full-on denier. I'm disappointed. I would have made fun of him, but uh, all right, what do you got? Go ahead. A Republican presidential candidate, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, hit back against members of his own party who don't accept the science behind climate change this week in an interview with late-night host Seth Meyers. I know I'm not a scientist, but here's the problem I've got with some people in my party. When you ask the scientists what's going on, why don't you believe them? <laughs> right. <laughs> if I went to ten doctors and nine said, hey, you're going to die, and one says you're fine... Why would I believe the one guy? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, good point. But will it be enough to make anybody notice that Lindsey Graham is running for president in the Republican Party? At this point, probably not. Too bad, because on this point, he's absolutely right, which is one of the reasons why he will never win the nomination for the Republican Party. Bad news for King Coal. For the first time in U.S. history, coal is no longer the dominant fuel source for the nation's electricity. <laughs> According to an independent industry analysis, as of April of this year, cheaper, cleaner-burning natural gas has displaced coal as the top source of electricity. It now generates more than 30% of U.S. electricity, in part due to the fracking boom in the United States. So sad to hear about coal. Yeah, but then it does mean that, that fracking continues. Yeah, well, pick your poison. But it's the beginning of the end for coal. So one battle at a time, Desi Doyen. 
Well, it is definitely the beginning of the end for coal in Iowa. An electric utility company has agreed to phase out coal at five of its generating units in Iowa as part of a settlement with the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Justice to resolve violations of the Clean Air Act as part of a lawsuit brought by the Sierra Club. Alliant Energy will pay a $1.1 million fine, install pollution controls, and switch to cleaner burning natural gas or face shutdown. It's the 200th coal plant to shut down in the U.S. as part of the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. So sad. States that have implemented regional carbon cap and trade programs are polluting less and their economies are doing great. That can't be. Chris Christie told us that cap and trade programs do not work and that's why he pulled out of the regional cap and trade agreement up in the Northeast just weeks after he met with David Koch in a secret meeting in New York. But but that's just a coincidence. Well, for more details, that Northeast Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, also called REGI, is an agreement by nine northeastern states to cut the carbon dioxide emitted by their power plants. That program generated nearly $250 million for the Massachusetts economy and more than $1 billion for the other northeastern partner states. All money that Chris Christie and New Jersey will not be getting. And it cut the region's greenhouse gas emissions that cause global warming. Bloomberg News reports that the global race for renewable energy has passed a turning point. According to Bloomberg's global analysis, the world is now adding more electricity capacity with renewable energy each year than coal, natural gas, and oil combined. The shift occurred in 2013, according to Bloomberg, and it will continue to accelerate. Bloomberg projects that by 2030, four times as much new renewable electricity generation capacity will be built than and fossil fuel power plants. A lot of good news in this report, Desi Doyen. You feeling all right? Uh, yeah, I think actually some good things are happening, so it's important to talk about it. All right. Finally, the movement for climate action just got a big assist in reaching today's teenage girls. The insanely popular British boy band One Direction has launched a campaign to get their fans engaged in acting on climate change. Please, will you join us to put pressure on our leaders? Become part of Action 1D. Make your voice heard and make 2015 the year we changed our futures forever. Their new website to mark the launch of their campaign is called Action 1D for One Direction. Does it matter that I don't really even know who One Direction is? No, you're not their target audience. It just makes me old, doesn't it? Yeah. For much more on all of the stories we covered today and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Old man. <laughs> That's what makes you beautiful. Old man. Oh, they're adorable, aren't they? I know, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is what makes you beautiful, though. Uh, thank you, Desi Doyan, our producer. And my uh, thanks also to my booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, the uh, nation's Ari Berman. Uh, thank you and all of our affiliates for joining us uh, this week and every week and every day, sharing part of your day or night with us. Greatly appreciated. We will see you soon. Until we do, you can write me. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. You can read Desi at that same address if you like. You can and should follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad blog until we meet again 
You can find me at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.